Welcome to another free first hour episode of the Higher Side Chats. I know we want to get into the action, but I have to ask that you help me armor us up a bit for the bumpy road ahead. Because I bring you the first hour of this show without unrelated ad nonsense as a proof of concept. And if you value it, then come over to THC Plus for the $8 a month and hear the full two-hour interviews as they were designed to be and as you would enjoy them most. Go to thehiresidechats.com or just click the link in the show notes to get started and within a minute you'll be plugging in your new Plus Show RSS feed into a hopefully decentralized podcasting 2.0 supported app. Feed the things you want to grow and starve the things that gotta go and we will reach the promised land. Think about that and enjoy the show. In the 1930s, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt addressed the nation through a series of radio broadcasts known as the Fireside Chats. His aim was to reassure the common man that our society would recover from its troubled times. Well, we're far from 1930, and I deal with a different kind of fire. For a new era of worldly frustration, we offer a fresh conversation. I'm Greg Carlwood, and these are the Higher Side Chats. All right, Higher Side Chatters, doing the thin from sunny San Diego, I'm Greg Carlwood, and when we truly take a look at where the world is going, I don't know how anybody feels good about it. We have an eerie full-court press from politicians, media talking heads, and overpaid celebrities encouraging a shot they don't know much about except that they were told to push it. Volunteers and task forces knocking on people's doors, travel, entertainment, and resource options being limited for those who won't comply and a censorship campaign levied against even the mildest challenges to the official story. But the tight grip of fear has people forgetting the shady track records of these companies, or that true health is not delivered in a pill or a shot. And with the digitization of everything and the technocratic takeover across nearly all sectors of life, this all starts to feel more like the onboarding of a new operating system for humanity rather than any sort of medicine I know. And couple that with the fact that we barely look up from our phones enough to notice the total neglect of all things natural, and the trends do not look to be changing anytime soon. While there is hope in a consortium of alternative voices who do know a little something about health, have warned against technocracy for some time, and are doing all they can to combat the best efforts of the big machine. And one of these voices I like to check in with on the regular is returning guest Sophia Smallstorm. It looks like this is our fifth time talking on THC, and she was certainly ahead of the pack as we talked about biological darkness and techno-eugenics in 2016, cell phone radiation, the machine merge, and glyphosate in 2018, and of course secret agendas, oxidative stress, and holistic health in 2020. You can always find her blog at aboutthesky.com and her bioremediation and healthy living products in her store at avatarproducts.com. She also offers a subscription-based newsletter upon request for those brave enough to follow her down the various rabbit holes she finds worthy of exploring. It is always a pleasure to have her here, the technocrat, critic, and defender of life in the digital age, the SoCal sage herself. Sophia, welcome back to the higher side. Greg, thank you. That was a very nice introduction. And I have to tell you, if you had talked any faster, maybe a lot faster, you would have sounded like an auctioneer. <laughs> yes. Well, I try. We're talking about very complex things and I'm trying to squeeze a lot into like the first 
90 seconds to get people geared up and on the same page. So it can be difficult. Well, it's that inflection, you know, there's an intensity in your inflection when you read out these introductions or speak out these introductions. But thank you for that. That's very nice of you. And, you know, I always say every time I do an interview, I am no real sage. All I'm doing is poking around and trying to answer my own questions. Mm -hmm. You know, in fact, as you were speaking and giving the introduction, I was thinking maybe the best way to begin this would be with what I just told you, this download that I had during the night and I wrote it down. Because as you mentioned in the introduction, this COVID shot is being touted all over the place by everybody, anyone with influence, including like government leaders and politicians, but celebrities. I mean, it's everywhere. It's on the television. They have all these sob stories of people and they're trying to send out these ambassadors, for God's sake, you know, to knock on your door and to convince you you should get vaccinated. And so it dawned on me during the night, this was a couple of nights ago, that this COVID vaccine is an offer of contract for you to enter the transhuman exchange, whereby your biology will be exchanged with or modified by synthetic recoding. And this offer of contract is being advertised day and night. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that is a great summary of the really deep core issue around this thing. We've always talked about how the elite have to tell us what they're doing or somehow get consent to offload the karma. That's always been the paradigm. And here you go. It's just heavily, heavily encouraged and it's free, but it is something you opt into. Right. And there's probably a lot of uh, small print attached to that shot. Well, there's small print that you're not shown. So one of the major drawbacks, the faults, the flaws in this offer of contract is that there is no proper disclosure. But it's obvious, even Moderna says in all of their earlier bragging about this thing, that this is hacking the software of life. So I came up with something else, which is the Federation of Natural Life. I think it's time for we who disagree with this offer of contract to enter the transhuman exchange, we should be saying, no, no, thank you. I'm a member of the Federation of Natural Life. Hmm. I like it. Yes, because that immediately puts you in a camp, gives you a group to identify with, however organized or unorganized that group is. You are in support of natural life, not this offer to exchange your inherent natural biology with synthetic biology that overwrites it, because that's what the vaccine is doing. And in this show, Greg, I would like to explain how they came to be able to do this overwriting. Yes, that is going to be the crux of what we talk about for sure. I was just going to ask you about some of the strange claims made about these shots, because I know at this point we've probably both seen a lot of people we care about get the shots. What have you observed? Have you seen friends get it and then get sicker than before? We're told this might happen. I think a lot of people are worried about their friends and family out there. Is it six months? Is it three months? What have you seen so far? Well, I'll tell you, 
if the shots are all actually this concoction, this COVID vaccine, then people are potentially in trouble because the purpose of the synthetic biology within the vaccine, the mRNA instructions, and we can get into this more in the show, that purpose is to tell your body how to make an unnatural to humans, so non-human spike protein. And you start manufacturing this and it starts roving around your body. And the body has a very good detection system. I learned this from my glyphosate studies. A good detection system for faulty protein synthesis. It's called protein misfolding. So when the body creates proteins called protein synthesis or protein folding, and then the body can do it wrong because proteins are made out of amino acids. And so if the wrong amino acids get used or there's substitutions made because the body is basically a biological blind man, it can't tell the difference between glycine and glyphosate. So it'll build proteins with glyphosate. And then down the road, it might be a few months, it might be a year, it goes, wait, what's this? I made this incorrectly. That is its detection system. And then it starts to try to take that protein apart so that it can remake it. And that is the body attacking itself, which is basically autoimmune disease. So with this COVID vaccine, if it's true that every shot was this introduction into the body of this synthetic biology rewriting protocol, then everyone who's received the shot will be making these false proteins or these non-human proteins and eventually they're going to get chased down by the body's own native protein misfolding detection system and that's going to possibly lead to horrible autoimmune disease and dr tenpenny sherry tenpenny yes has predicted that we're going to have they call it cytokine storm autoimmune disease you know exponentially just mushrooming and all these people are going to end up in terrible debilitation, states of debilitation. But overall, Greg, we see a lot of people getting vaccinated. I can't say that I have friends, per se, who've been vaccinated because all my friends are awake. They're not getting vaccinated. But I know people, neighbors and whatnot, who have been vaccinated. And I've heard that they haven't felt well. I've also noticed that a lot of people are aging rapidly who were vaccinated. And one of my deep researcher friends said that there is an aging factor to the vaccines. They're going to accelerate human aging. Hmm. And certainly I have noticed some, let's just say neighbors and, you know, people I run into who are looking extremely decrepit these days. And I know they have been vaccinated. Hmm, that's interesting. I've also heard some reports from people saying that they've noticed a lot of behavioral or logic changes in their vaccinated friends and family, which is pretty tough to quantify. I mean, these are unprecedented times, and some people are also predisposed to overanalyze this and are maybe making things out to be bigger than they really are because they expect this cascade of apocalyptic problems. But I at least thought it was worth taking a mental note of, and I can officially say I know more vaccinated people who have gotten sick with COVID symptoms, whatever we want to say that means, than unvaccinated by almost double. So who knows exactly what's going on, but many things don't fully add up. 
Well, once again, they have created the perfect enemy. An enemy that is fictional can never be caught. Yeah. So if this, let's just call it FC, fictional COVID, keeps mutating and it keeps eluding the last version of the vaccine, then you're going to have to be vaccinated forever. And now one person I talked to who's very well informed said that he has learned from credible sources, he didn't tell me who those sources were, that up to 80% of the crop of COVID shots given in the last year were saline solution. Mm. And that there was only a certain small percentage or proportion of these vaccines that was the real stuff. And those are the people that have gotten sick and who constitute all the numbers. And we know that the VAERS government adverse effects reporting site represents only a slice of the people who have been harmed who are not reporting because they don't know that they can. So it's possible that in the boosters, there's going to be more and more of the real stuff, less and less of the saline. Mm -hmm. But I don't know. I mean, this is just hearsay. And I've always wondered how much they've got to be giving some saline solution. I'm sure that they have. Well, there was also a weird story I saw, again, unverified, but there was some internal document supposedly from the oil industry where they were talking about needing to replace 80% of their workers. Yeah. And the logic was that, well, they're all going to get vaccinated. 80% of them won't be here anymore. And we're going to need to find people that we can onboard really quickly to keep this money machine going. And that was pretty provocative. If there's any industry that might have some insider knowledge, the oil industry would be pretty high on that list. Yeah, that was somebody who worked in recruitment for the oil and gas industry. And she did say that they've been having these internal meetings and looking to set up already a big roster of replacement personnel. I don't know, Greg, because we don't know who these people are who make these videos, you know? Right, right. What I find very interesting is people have signed on to this. We have been conditioned already for a few decades on this viruses, viral theory of disease. And so in my newsletter, the February-March newsletter that we're going to discuss, I actually delved into what viruses really are. Because there's a camp that says viruses don't exist, they don't cause disease, they've never been isolated. Virology is a made-up science. However, it's not. They're doing something in these labs, and what are they doing? Right. That is a very important issue. And... Let's just talk about it, because you wrote a lot about the work of Jennifer Lake and plant viruses in that February-March newsletter. Maybe that's a good place to start. I think, Greg, we should start with what they have discovered about DNA, because ultimately, this is all about how your body makes itself and makes its parts and components, right? Mm-hmm. And synthetic biology seeks to overwrite that. So how did they ever figure out that DNA was nature's most amazing natural hard drive? Our current hard drives, and they are talking out there, you'll read it about, you know, ecological issues, issues of economics with all the enormous data that we are 
accumulating, especially in this world of growing AI, the electricity consumption of places to store all this data. So the term is sustainable storage that they're throwing around. And they are pointing to nature's original hard drive, which is DNA. And so they can synthesize or make DNA. This is man-made synthetic DNA. And they have learned how to upload, I kid you not, words, images, music onto this synthetic DNA. So it functions as a hard drive. And there is a scientist at Columbia University, Yaniv Ehrlich, E-R-L-I-C-H, and he is credited with figuring out how to stuff 60% more data onto DNA than ever before. Now, none of this is cheap. They haven't figured out a cheap way to program their synthetic DNA, but they have discovered some very interesting things about DNA in that it is not just durable, because, I mean, we have DNA that goes back thousands of years that hasn't been destroyed or destroyed itself. So one of the other advantages of writing code on DNA is that it's always going to be the same writing and reading method because the DNA doesn't change. So we'll always be able to read DNA. Reading DNA is called sequencing and writing on it or making it is called synthesizing. All right. So we have the ability to read and write and copy DNA. And they're doing this in labs. And the way that the method works is our computers employ binary code, zeros and ones. And a shade of blue is a certain number and arrangement of zeros and ones. A different shade of blue is a different number and arrangement of zeros and ones. So you can create combinations to represent musical notes, anything you want, if you just keep moving and arranging zeros and ones. Well, DNA is made up of four what they call nucleotides. They go by letter abbreviations, A, G, C, and T. And they stand for adenine, guanine, cytosine, and thymine. And so all you have to do is figure out how you can represent A, C, G, and T with zeros and ones. So the way they've done it is A is double zero. C is 0, 1, G is 1, 0, and T is 1, 1. Now you have the translation method to translate binary code into nucleotides. And that's what they're doing. And they have found that one gram of DNA can carry millions and millions of megabytes of information because one speck of DNA in your body holds the codes for everything in you. So just imagine the compactness of this new kind of hard drive if they can figure out a way to use it cheaply enough. Now let's go back to the very first hard drive that was ever made by IBM in 1956. It was this big box. It was the size of two upright pianos back to back. And all that it could hold was the equivalent of one MP3 song, and it weighed over a ton. Hmm. So... We've got a huge improvement over that in DNA. Right, right. And then the other plus to DNA, and I learned all this, I'm not a computer geek. So our modern computing is called von Neumann computing. 
and we have storage areas in our drives, and then we have these processors. So that presents what is considered a bottleneck in computing because bits have to be moved between the two, taken from where they live or are stored to where they're manipulated. And DNA does both at the same time. It does what they call, and they would love to have, in-storage computing or in-memory computing. There is no lag time between moving the material from here to here in order to work it. DNA does everything all at once, parallel computing all at once. Mm -hmm. Right. And when it comes to them making synthetic biology and writing code on the building blocks of life, this goes back further than we know, right? It does have something to do with viruses and virology as a field. Well, yes, because remember Ray Kurzweil, the futurist? Yes. When I gave my, I think it was my first talk on synthetic biology, I quoted him. And back then in those days, Greg, I figured out that this chemtrail stuff, all these weird fibers that were showing up in people and that were doing these strange things, and these people were having silica and quartz come out of their pores. I figured that this was some kind of inlaying of synthetic biology into the human body, and these people were experiments. And Ray Kurzweil, Mr. Futurist, said, nanobots will be flowing through our arteries to keep us healthy and transmit our brains onto the cloud. Now, I didn't understand what that last part meant, because I don't think we really had the cloud then. You know, this was 2011. But today, yes, they intend to and want us to welcome, this is the offer of contract for the transhuman exchange. Hey, people, we can put nanobots in your body and they will rove around and they will act as monitors and keep you healthy and flag things that are going wrong. And they are trying to condition the public mind into wanting that. Hmm. And the COVID shot is the first real public big time effort to invite people into becoming transhuman. Right. And I copied this down from your newsletter, but you wrote, I learned that biological matter is put through repeated reduction processes in the laboratory called distillation, purification, filtration, and rendered down into proteins that are crystalline in nature. These renderings are what laboratory scientists are calling viruses. And I mentioned Jennifer Lake. I wanted to read this quote that you have where Jennifer Lake writes in her post, planting viruses from plants. How much fakery can you take? What if I told you that since the 1950s, if not before, all the viruses promoted as dangerous, deadly, and necessary to vaccinate against actually came from common plants? And that all the pictures from electron micrographs of these so-called viruses are of things derived from either one, plant extracts, or two, the harmless natural cell components of living systems. Someone should shout from the rooftops, there are no viruses, people. The stuff in the lab dishes is fully man-made. It only infects cells, as its creators claim, because of the normal way that cells attempt to eat. 
that is taking nutrients. So this is getting into some pretty interesting territory that I haven't really heard it broken down from this perspective. Can you clarify a little bit of that for people who are new to this? Yeah. So I was getting all mixed up and I decided let's start very simply. What are the different contexts for the word virus? Okay, we've heard of the mythic virus. This is, it causes disease. It lurks in ponds and swamps and swimming pools and it will give you polio. And then there's the lab-created virus, which we heard, oh, scientists make it at Fort Detrick and then they release it and it becomes an epidemic because they want you to get vaccinated. They're causing illness. They're releasing illness into the population, right? So I call that the lab-created virus. Then I realized there's something else as well. And I call this the actual laboratory virus. Now, this is what they're diddling with in labs. Let's forget the scientists, the evil scientists who work for the military and they're making this stuff and they're releasing it. Let's forget that. I know that is a theory that a lot of people in the conspiracy or truth-telling world called this is a bioweapon but we're going to put all that aside along with the mythic virus now in the laboratories jenny lake has plumbed this material ad nauseum and what she has discovered is that they take any kind of biological material and the easiest way to get it now is from plants because the plant stuff can be resynthesized it's very cheap to obtain but this material that they have in labs, when they work it, they put it through filtration, they put it through centrifuges, spinning, they put it through all kinds of purification processes and steps, and they get it down to its essence. Think of Marie Curie isolating radium. You have to burn this part off and that part off, and eventually you end up with this element, right? So what they're doing with these biological materials and they get them out of people's bodies they can get them out of feces which they really enjoy they really enjoy rendering feces down they can get them from plants they can get them from insects anything biological can be reduced to its structural material which is protein and when you take that protein and you reduce it down further you get crystalline protein and this is the laboratory virus. They are making crystalline proteins out of anything and everything. And all these crystalline protein base materials are almost identical. And the way they've learned to write on DNA, they've learned to write on these crystals because crystals are programmable. So they have learned to render through their processes materials from biological tissues down into what I call crystalline filtrates. And they're calling these filtrates viruses as though they cause disease. But these are really materials that they can write programs on, put instruction upon, and then they include these in their solutions that they claim to be and market as vaccines and pretend is preventive medicine. So in the mind of modern biology, which is basically nanotechnology and has been for a very long time, everything living, when you reduce it into its components, can be considered machines and machinery. 
a protein is just a robot. An enzyme is another robot. Hmm. And they have sought to treat all this biological material as machine technology, which they can affect by making changes to it, writing on it, for instance, coding onto it. And this is their coup. This is what they have discovered. And they're calling this virus. Right. Yeah, it's a completely different way to conceptualize all this. So they write on these crystalline filtrates. Yes. How do these things infect people? Because when they introduce anything into the body, I mean, it's like I saw these birds at the swimming pool yesterday and they're, you know, hopping around and they're drinking water that's in little puddles around the jacuzzi. And I'm thinking, you poor birds don't drink this. It's heavily brominated, chlorinated. You're not going to do well on drinking this water, but they don't know the difference. So when something is injected into your body, the cell, it bumps into the cell and the cell opens its mouth and goes, oh, is this food? And takes it in and then starts to investigate. So this is where I came up with the analogy of the mailman, right? So people have not realized that the carrier, or let's just call it the envelope for the stuff in the COVID vaccines is called tobacco mosaic virus. Now we have to remember the tobacco plant is a very interesting plant, first of all. It's a phytoremediator of soil. It loves nuclear radiation. You can have a nuclear plant and you know, it radiates all around itself and messes up the soil environmentally, and you plant tobacco around it, and the soil is cleaned up quickly. It will take out radioactive materials from soil. The other thing about tobacco is they have used uranium tailings, that's the leftover from Manhattan Project Uranium Refinement, to fertilize tobacco crops for a very long time. And they use something else, polonium or something like that. It begins with a P. I wrote about it in a newsletter to fertilize tobacco as well, which is radioactive. So the tobacco today is all genetically modified. They have fiddled with it. It's not natural. But they discovered that tobacco mosaic virus, meaning the stuff they render out of tobacco plants is the perfect carrier. It's self-replicating. It works on a nanoscale. And so from what I learned from Jenny Lake's blog, which, by the way, is jenniferlake.wordpress.com, jenniferlake.wordpress.com. This is not an easy blog to read. She maintains this as a kind of open notebook. I had to read posts five, six, seven, eight times and call her up and tell her, explain this, explain this, explain this. And she would try to explain, and I still wouldn't understand. And then I had to go back again and start doing my own unraveling, going to original sources that she was including and trying to translate. So what I got from this was that, let's just do the analogy of a mailman. A mailman comes to your house. He has a bag with letters, which are in envelopes. So he rings your doorbell. He hands you an envelope. He says, there's a letter for you. So you open the envelope and there is a letter inside and has instructions for you to follow. So the way it works with the mRNA vaccines is 
The mailman in that scenario is the needle and the syringe. They deliver an envelope to your cells, which is tobacco mosaic virus. This is this crystalline material that they have made in a lab. The envelope has a letter, which is the mRNA, and the letter carries instructions. The cell reads the letter, it follows the instructions, and it is told to put special spike proteins upon the envelope that was just delivered. So this is where we get into how cells eat. Cells have ways of taking in materials and ways of sending them out. So endocytosis is how a cell takes in something that it thinks it's supposed to use. And this in the laboratory parlance is called infection. So when lab scientists tell you, oh, here's a virus that infects cells, or this virus has a very high infection capability, they're just saying cells will open their mouths and try to eat this thing because that's what they do. That's called endocytosis. So what a cell really does is it makes a little sack which takes this thing from outside, the envelope that the mailman just brought, brings it into itself and says, all right, what's this? Is this food? And then, no, it's not food. The cell gets the letter with the instructions and it says, okay, I have to make spike proteins and put it on this thing and send it out again. Now, the cell took it in as an endosome and it pushes it out with the spike proteins attached as an exosome, right? Remember that word, exosome, mm -hmm. from Andy Kaufman? Mm -hmm. So you can't just talk about exosomes because exo means I'm sending it out. Endo means I'm taking it in, right? So the cell starts by treating this thing like an endosome. It inspects it and it goes, huh, I'm supposed to put proteins on this thing, spike proteins, and I'm going to send it out. So what is an exosome? I simply went to the internet. I looked it up. An exosome just means a nano-sized sack or pouch, a vesicle, they call it, that contains proteins and nucleic acids. And they are produced for release in this cellular expulsion process called exocytosis. Endocytosis means the cell takes it in. Exocytosis means it pushes it out for travel. And everything I read described exosomes as bubbles, sacs, pouches, released to go to other cells to carry healthy and lost information to them and insert this lost information into the target cell so the target cell could heal. So the information, these exosomes are shuttles for genetic information. And what's happening in the vaccine, this mRNA vaccine is an envelope gets delivered to the cell. The cell takes it in as an endosome, reads the letter on it and goes, all right, I've got to make this an exosome, a shuttle, and sends this out where it floats around and it bumps into other cells that take it in, make proteins, the spike proteins, and send it out again. Are you following? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the exosomes are travelers that carry genetic information to target cells. And 
this vaccine is giving new genetic information to the body so that it can start coursing around. And one day, if Sherry Tenpenny is right, the body's detection system for weird proteins is going to go, hey, wait a minute, what is all this stuff? I have to do something about this. And that's when we have the autoimmune storm. Right. Well, that is a great summary. And when it comes to viruses, some people might struggle with this new framing of everything. But there was a quote from Francis Crick that you have highlighted where he said that any child could make a virus. They're all made of identical subunits. So here's the guy who discovered DNA saying that viruses could be made by children, which is just a weird thing when it's kind of contradictory to the framing we're typically given. But when it gets to this level where we're talking about, well, all these viruses or these illnesses, swine flu, bird flu, these sicknesses we know of, they're made in the lab. When it gets to this level... I start wondering, well, what about pre-Rockefeller medicine and post-Rockefeller medicine? Because, of course, a lot of fuckery can go on since Rockefeller medicine has started, but it isn't that old of a discipline. So we got things like the Black Plague, you know, bubonic plague, smallpox, these diseases or pandemics or these sicknesses that people used to get way before there was a science of virology how do we explain that? Is that just a alteration of history to fit into their model or or what's going on here? It seems like there are some widespread natural illnesses from somewhere. Okay, I have to just roll you backwards a little bit. Sure. Swine flu, bird flu, all of that, they're not made in a lab. They are conditions attributed to viruses which are actually conditions caused by something else. So Sherry Tenpenny's book, Fowl, that I read many years ago, made the case that these birds that were dying in China were dying because of polluted waters dating all the way back to Vietnam and Agent Orange. All right. Rappaport, John Rappaport, if I'm remembering correctly, attributed swine flu to very polluted groundwater and water that pigs were getting in contact with or drinking or something that was making them sick. And they called it a viral outbreak. Zika virus, which supposedly gives you this, you know, no head, the top of your head is all flattened out, is attributable to the use of glyphosate in agriculture in Brazil. Mm. Because similar anencephaly, I think it's called, and microcephaly. In Yakima, is that how you say it, Washington, they used glyphosate to treat weeds that were growing next to the ditches. And I guess the irrigation systems were getting clogged up with weeds. So they were using this herbicide on these weeds by the ditches. And the result was that there was this epidemic of children born with, I think it was like no brain stem or something horrible and it matched what was happening in Brazil. Dr. Stephanie Seneff makes a case for this. And so these things that they're calling viral outbreaks are not viral outbreaks. They are outbreaks because there was some kind of, let's call it an environmental condition that 
created this. Now, if you want to talk about Black Plague and whatnot and smallpox, I have learned from certain people who know much more than I do that there's something carried on the bed bug that makes humans break out in these pustules that constitute smallpox. And I'm not sure what that is, but Greg, there are a lot of, let's just call them organisms that are not friendly to humans. Mm -hmm. I mean, your body is crawling. Your body is actually an integration of two forms of life. It has bacterial life living in it, almost like a constant parasite, to the tune of quadrillions of organisms, which do very specific jobs for you. You don't digest your food. You eat it. You know, you scoop the pudding into the dish and you put crumbled graham crackers on top of it and you put a spoon in it and you go, yum, yum, this is wonderful. And you swallow it, put it in your mouth, swallow it and get all the satisfaction. But it's digested by bacteria living in your gut. That's called your gut microbiome. Mm -hmm. And I learned from someone who knows that the reason that so many small children, you know, they only want to have pizza or they only want to have macaroni and cheese or peanut butter and jelly on white bread. They are clamoring for this food because that's the only kind of bacteria they have in their gut that can digest their food. There is no other biome in there. So I have neighbors who tell me they can't eat salad. They can only eat bread and meat. And if they eat a salad, a leaf of lettuce, it makes them sick. And I said, you don't have any biome. You have to diversify your gut biome. You're supposed to have something like 40,000 different types of bacteria living in your intestinal tract and your gut, with your stomach, esophagus, all of this is gut. And most people, even most quote-unquote healthy people, are running at one quarter that. That's the deficiency. Most healthy people have like 10,000 variants, and they're supposed to have 40,000, 30,000, something. So I've digressed. But what happens with disease is that something gets out of balance. For instance, have you heard the term pleomorphism with bacteria? I have heard the term, but it probably needs some clarification. Okay. So you can see YouTubes on this. They usually tell us bacteria are rod-shaped or they're spiral or they're round. They have different shapes for bacteria. But the fact is that bacteria will morph into another shape, another type of bacteria altogether, depending on what they eat. So bacteria are the trash men of the body. They are deployed through the portal blood. They actually come out of your gut and they will start roving the bloodstream and be directed to an area where the rate of cell death is exceeding the rate of cell repair. Because in your inflammatory response process, which has its own battalions of soldiers that do different jobs of breaking this down, building that up. If the rate of cell repair starts to fall behind and something is causing your cells to die, like a chemical that you've taken in somehow, bacteria will be deployed to the site of all this breakdown and they will start eating the organic debris. And 
those bacteria will change their form depending on what kind of cells they're eating. So they can go right then and there from rod-shaped to cone-shaped, from spiral to rod-shaped. And scientists have made the error of looking at blood and seeing these bacteria of a certain shape and thinking that this was the cause of the disease, right? No, that bacterial shape was hatched because bacteria are eating this kind of debris and they have changed their shape. So we have misattributed the presence of bacteria to causing disease rather than being a cleanup squad that comes in and tries to eat this. Or, because what happens in bacterial infection is if the bacteria overeat, they multiply. They're multiplying in milliseconds. So the over-multiplication of bacteria causes what's called sepsis or bacterial infection. And that's bad for you because the bacteria produce their own toxic wastes, which keep their populations in check to some extent. But that waste or slime can be swept off in your bloodstream and carried to other organs and start toxifying other organs. And this is when you go into a state of sepsis in the hospital. It usually happens with sepsis. Septic shock is the result of having way too much infection in you called sepsis. So when you have sepsis in a hospital, that's actually the cause of 50% of all hospital deaths, but they never write that down. Hmm. Yeah. And sepsis is simply bacteria that have over-multiplied because they had too many dead things to eat. And their waste got swept off into the bloodstream and started toxifying other organs. And that's an emergency situation. That's when they ply you with antibiotics. So the only reason antibiotics work is because the recipient of the antibiotic is having a bit too much bacterial growth and this toxin that they put in you, they call it antibiotic, it smashes down that rate of growth of the bacteria and it gives your body a chance to catch up. Hmm. Well, very, very interesting. I think this makes a lot of sense. And, you know, I did mention the Black Plague. There is a book out there called New Light on the Black Death that kind of shows how at that time depth there are changes in ice core samples and in tree ring samples that really cast doubt on the idea that there was some pathogen out there, but do make a good case that there was some environmental change. Some say an asteroid hit and kicked up a bunch of dust in the air and people were breathing that in. I don't know, but just those ice core samples and tree rings do show an environmental change that wouldn't be caused by a virus. And I also wrote this down that also was a bit of a head scratcher and kind of speaks to the paradigm you're presenting. You have a paragraph from Scientific American in 2003 that reads, Polio's latest redoubts are chronic excretors, people with compromised immune systems who, having swallowed weakened polio viruses in an oral vaccine as children, generate and shed live viruses from their intestines and upper respiratory tracts for years. Healthy children react to the vaccine by developing antibodies that shut down viral replication, thus gaining immunity to infection, 
but chronic excretors cannot quite complete that process and instead churn out a steady supply of virus. Well, I've been hearing more and more that the cause of certain outbreaks for measles and mumps, and I guess polio, are actually pockets of vaccinated people. But this just adds more confusion. It seems clear that Scientific America would not highlight this article or paragraph today, but they were willing to say something like this back in 2013, funny enough, but it doesn't really comply with the conventional thinking there. Okay, so I should clarify. First of all, the date on that is August 2013. I think you said 2003. Oh, my bad. But what they're doing is they are fuzzing over where they get the material to make polio virus. Remember, polio virus is made in a lab in a dish. It's not out there ready to infect you. And these chronic excretors are people, children, whose feces they used. And they assumed that the feces contained polio virus because the children had received weakened polio viruses in an oral vaccine, okay? So this is just one plus one is two, and it's not correct. This is called bad math. It's the same as saying this child with measles, with these, this rash on him, his blood contains the measles virus. So let's use his blood, let's distill it into some crystalline filtrate, and let's make a vaccine out of it. And if we give this vaccine in tiny doses to other children, they'll develop immunity. This is the fallacy. This is the whole house of cards of virology, popular virology. But laboratory virology is entirely different. They are fascinated with caca. I kid you not. And most of the virus that they develop, these crystalline filtrates, either come from plants or they come from human feces, because to them, this is a kind of alchemy. And these early virus makers, they actually carried polio crystals in their pockets, just like Marie Curie carried radium, which eventually killed her. I did have that quote written down that these early virus makers would carry these crystals around, and your equation to... Madam Curie, but why did they do that? I mean, why did they carry the crystals around? Because it's their stuff. It's what they play with, you know? Mm. This is what intrigues them. I mean, Marie was obsessed with this quest for radium. In fact, her husband, Pierre Curie, abandoned his study of piezoelectricity, which is critical to what's happening in the body with its own bioelectricity. This is huge. And if you read my most recent newsletter, there's a big part about colloidal chemistry at the end and piezoelectricity. But of course, these people carry this stuff around because it's their inspiration. It's their cause. It's their quest. It's their dream. And these PhDs carried around and played with what they called polio, which was really crystals derived from human feces. I mean, these people are diabolical mm -hmm. and they can destroy and deconstruct organic waste and make it into these filtrates. And the source of this waste for a long time was in this fecal matter that they took from what they called chronic excretors, children. I mean, if you look at early virology, they were using 
mouse brains and crushed up spinal cords. They'd put this in wearing blenders and then they would inject it into monkeys and rats and worse even people. This is what they considered the root cause of disease. And when they put this stuff into people and monkeys and rats and rabbits, everything started to do poorly and die, of course. Mm -hmm. So let me explain something about the Th1 and the Th2 immune system. Your blood is a very kind of sanctified material in your body. And it should not be given a dose of disgusting crap. If you have a cut on your body, Greg, and disgusting crap gets into it, you're going to have an infection, right? Right. That is a localized inflammatory response expediently created to address right then and there the stuff that's coming in. Now, your Th2 immune system is called your antibody immune system, your humoral immune system, and it is the second squadron of immunity. The Th1 system is called the cell-mediated immune system, and it also includes the digestive tract and all of its functions. A lot of your reflexes, your barriers, like even your eyelashes are part of your Th1 immune system. The cilia, the hairs in your nose, these are filters. The skin has hairs on it. The lungs have these cilia in them, these hair-like things. And then you have all these reflexes, coughing, sneezing, vomiting, diarrhea. So anything gross and noxious that comes into your body through its portals and orifices, like nose, eyes, ears, throat, gets addressed by the Th1 immune system. And if it's bad, it is pooped out, sneezed out, vomited out, or your tears, mucosal membranes start getting into action and they try to pour it out. So when glyphosate comes into your body, your body goes, what? I don't like this. And it opens the gut wall early and it tries to pull water from the bloodstream so it can flush the glyphosate out. And in that process, things that are not fully broken down, including the glyphosate, they leak out of the gut into the bloodstream. Now, this is called leaky gut, and it's a cause of a lot of illness today. So you don't want in your bloodstream anything except that which is totally broken down. Fats must be broken down into lipids. Proteins must be broken down into amino acids. Sugars must be broken down into their component parts, different kinds of saccharides. Carbohydrates, that is, must be broken down. So you don't want half broken down stuff entering the bloodstream because that's when the body mounts an autoimmune defense. So what's happening in a vaccination is that it is basically breaking and entering into your body and it's putting this noxious stuff made of brains and poop and God knows what else. It's putting it in your bloodstream. So your Th2 immune system is going, huh? What happened? The Th1 system has failed me. I need to go nuts. And it starts building all kinds of antibodies, cross-referential antibodies, and trying to protect you from this invader that came into the blood just like that. So when they make this stuff out of feces and then they put it in what they call vaccines, preventive medicine, they have been 
figuring out how to write on this to program viruses. And this is a quote from Humane Genomic, a company headed up by Andrew Hessel. And he says that drug manufacturing is costly and it's getting unaffordable for a lot of people. I mean, 100000 a month for some drugs. So they have had to develop another road to treat and heal disease. And he says, we began with biologics, cells and viruses are all machines and they're programmable. Mm. So this is the result of learning how to distill these biological materials into crystals and they have learned how to write on the crystals. Interesting. Interesting. Yes, this isn't the first time I've heard this kind of stuff, but it is in a slightly different framing that I think is more useful. I wanted to bring this up too about microscopes because it's pretty relevant. It relates to thinking of biology as just a machine as well as electricity and health. But you write, a colleague of Allison McDowell is the internet writer Steffers, whose post can be found at peaceofmind.com. Her six-part Rise of the Cybernetic Wizard just floated into my inbox today and reminds us that these scientists think of biology's smallest players as mere machines. DNA and RNA are machines. Nano-sized ribosomes are nanorobots. Protozoan motions are walking robots. And when you look through what is called an atomic force microscope, which none of us have, you see a world that is governed by electrical forces, Steffers says. And it's that last part that is extra interesting to me. It seems like they're very careful with who gets what microscopes. And I know you also read Arthur Furstenberg's The Invisible Rainbow. That has a lot to say about the connection between electricity and health. I'm told he hates shows like mine, so there's no chance he'll respond to my emails. But this quote from Steffers and that book from Arthur Furstenberg are both pretty eye-opening, right? Well, definitely. I would say Furstenberg's book concentrates on the introduction of what's called non-native EMFs, which include frequencies and fields. So non-native electromagnetic fields, non-native electromagnetic frequencies into our domestic lives. And these fields and frequencies were first experimented with by military, and then they came into industry, and now they are in our lives, in close proximity to our bodies. But what Steffers is talking about is, I think, I'm trying to find that part in my newsletter where I mentioned her, but one thing that's very important, this was another download I got, I will refer to Anthony Patch. He is saying that synthetic biocomputers are being injected into people by these smart vaccines. And this is what mRNA is. It's biocomputing circuits. So the stuff they create in labs, they have learned to write on and put it in our bodies like a genie in a bottle. You know, Greg, there is a big billboard on the 805 here in San Diego, and it's been up for I don't know how long, months. It shows this pretty woman, you know, it's for UCSD or something, the hospital. 
it says cancer therapy as unique as you. And what that evokes is you come to the nice oncologist and you sit down and he listens to you and he says, all right, we're going to give you this and this and this because these are the best things for you. No, that's not what it's about. It's about this personalized medicine, which is also gene therapy, which is coding going into your body that they're telling you is going to help you out the most. But it's really synthetic biology that they're putting in your body because they want to and they want to play with you. It's biocomputation, computation inside living cells. And DNA is the medium that's being programmed. Hmm. So that's where they're going with what they're calling viruses, what they're making in labs, which are crystals, which can be written on. Now, I couldn't tell you how they write on these things. But remember, I mean, we live, you and I in San Diego, this is a biotech center, right? True. And if you drive by these companies, they have the most bone-chilling names, neurocrine, very strange combinations of biologic terms that really give me the heebie-jeebies. <laughs> these companies are all about innovation. They are about breaking the boundaries of biology, finding out how to do extremely interesting, novel, and innovative things, and to get recognition for that. Mm -hmm. And these people have lost sight of, you know, any kind of, I'll call it a moral compass. They don't care that they are introducing biology into our bodies to just, you know, like tromp around like a vagabond. This is vagabond synthetic biology. Hmm. It's a crazy world. It is. Well, so, sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, let's keep it simple, stupid. <laughs> yes, well said. And Sophia, it is always a great pleasure. We learned a lot today and plenty of food for thought. Remind the people about some of your products they might find helpful and how to sign up for the newsletter we're always hearing about. Thank you, Greg. Yes, my newsletter is by subscription donation every year. And if you go to my blog, sophiasmallstorm.com, on the left side, there's a little address. You can simply write to me, drop a check in the mail, and I'll add you to the list. And it comes monthly, hard copy, snail mail, which people like. They actually keep it in binders. You know, all these years, I've had people stay with me since 2010 when I began. So I'm very honored. And then I have my online store, avatarproducts.com. We're carrying a great line of soap now. Everybody is universally agreeing it's the best soap they've ever used. You can use it as shampoo, not so much for women with long hair. But there are so many varieties of soap. I've gone nuts ordering this particular soap maker's offerings. Just excellent. And then I've just got in two new books, not only Invisible Rainbow by Arthur Furstenberg, which I think is a fantastic read. But also Stephanie Seneff's new book, Toxic Legacy on Glyphosate. She's finally put all her glyphosate info together, and she's a very good writer. So that's for sale now in the store. I have cell phone shielding cases. I mean, iodine, magnesium are my top sellers. Different kinds of magnesium products, which we're very deficient in, and iodine as well. 
So, you know, that's pretty much it, Greg. I share the things I've stumbled on with my friends who are all of you listening and my hosts also who are my friends. So thank you. Yes. And I also have to slip in a thank you to you for the breathable cheesecloth masks. For people who don't know, you make masks that pretty much look like anyone else's, but you can breathe through them just fine. And I wasn't going to send my pregnant wife back to St. Louis on a plane with restrictive breathing. And she said yours was a huge, huge help. So I hope we're done needing to make new purchases over this bullshit. But for anyone still dealing with it, Sophia has you covered. Thank you, Greg. And you know what? The graphene masks are supposed to be breathable. Those Ah. black ones. And I was wondering why everybody was wearing black masks. And now I'm horrified because they were the graphene masks. And you were breathing in this graphene, which was going to run through you like little scissors and knives and cut up all your cells. And my masks don't do that at all. (laughs) Right. Well, that's that's a hell of an ad right there. (laughs) Yeah. Good to know. Yes. And. There we have it. Well, great to talk to you again. Lots of amazing info as always. Keep fighting the good fight out there. Thank you, Greg. It's always a pleasure to be on a show with somebody as bright as you. And you are right in step with me. It's not a hard interview to do at all. Thank you. (laughs) Yes, you give me too much credit, but thanks. Sophia, small storm number five. How about it? I had a good time. And I know that for a lot of people who have wanted to follow the whole what is a virus anyway thread, they've probably done a lot of that investigation outside of THC because a lot of other people hone in on that more so than we do. It has come up a couple of times with some guests, but not since Dr. Andrew Kaufman have we really revisited it to this degree. So some of this might have been review, but... I like the way Sophia puts it and the work of Jenny Lake that she's been highlighting because it shows that they've been messing around in the lab for a long time with this stuff. And maybe they did realize that common extracts from something like a tobacco plant can get into the body, be recognized as something that doesn't belong, trigger an immune response, and we say, well, they caught the virus. I don't know if that's the solve for every single situation, but it's in the mix, along with exposure to chemicals and EMF sickness. And these days, you might be doing everything right, but you ate an apple with a high concentration of glyphosate in it or something. It's just so hard to keep healthy anymore. And don't I know it, because I've been pretty under the weather for the last week or so. I was going to try to just work around it and not even let you guys know that I've been sick, but... You can hear it in my voice now, and I recorded a show with Michael Wan where it's pretty friggin' obvious, so I guess let it be known. The whole time I could still smell and taste with the best of them, but it has been a rough week, and I am scrambling to finish up my obligations before the month ends, so bear with me, guys, please. I love what I do, but there's nobody to pass the baton to if I need a break, and it came at such a bad time because my wife's 33 weeks pregnant and needs me to be taking care of her, not the other way around. Anyway, that's my problem, but I like this one. And sometimes it's actually kind of hard for me to gauge just how much we've talked about a thing before, because I read The Invisible Rainbow on my own time, 
And I know that it's been mentioned and I've listened to other interviews about it and I've talked about it on shows that have had me on. But I think Sophia probably explained some aspects of the book that have not really been on THC before, if I can recall correctly. So I thought that was valuable. I definitely wanted to get into the East India Company stuff in the first hour because it was a unique topic to add to the stack, but it just didn't happen that way. We still got to it, but it just took that second hour to get there. And not to spend too much time on this have they or have they not isolated the virus question, because people are sending me material on this pretty much every day and have been for a year. But it was something I planned to clarify in the show today, and we just didn't get to it. And look, I'm a big Tom Cowan fan. I've said that plenty of times. Well, when he and his colleagues say that they've never isolated a COVID-19 virus, he means without a computer model filling in the gaps. So before you send me papers that say, we isolated COVID-19 in the title, you need to read the full paper and make sure that what they say is true in the headline is actually true. To elaborate, I found this interesting, but Sophia took this from Dr. Cowan's blog, and he explains it while referring to a publication in the CDC journal Emerging Infectious Diseases. But he says, the purpose of the article was for a group of about 20 virologists to describe the state of the science of the isolation, purification, and biological characteristics of the new SARS-CoV-2 virus. A thorough and careful reading of this important paper reveals some shocking findings. First, in the section titled Whole Genome Sequencing, we find that rather than having isolated the virus and sequencing the genome from end to end, they found 37 base pairs from unpurified samples using PCR probes. This means they actually looked at 37 out of approximately 30,000 base pairs that are claimed to be the genome of the intact virus. They then took these 37 segments and put them into a computer program which filled in the rest of the base pairs. The researchers claim they decided on the real genome for the SARS-CoV-2 by consensus, sort of like a vote, as different computer programs will come up with different versions of the full virus. The scientists come together as a group and decide which is the real one. In other words, the sequencing of the SARS-CoV-2 virus was done by assumption and arbitrary inference. And then Sophia adds... The holy grail found here is that the SARS-CoV-2 virus that has dogged the entire world and paralyzed it beyond recognition is the work of computer algorithms. And why not? AI did the thinking for us, just as its designers intended, and no one is asking any questions. And I thought that was just a really good summary of the whole issue, and it's why people get so hung up and combative on this particular point. We have official claims of isolation, but if Dr. Cowan's interpretation of this paper is correct and there haven't been any more successful follow-ups, then I would have to say that's a pretty far cry from what they're claiming to have done. So I just wanted to lay that to rest. I actually don't care about that point very much because I'm just over it. <laughs> but that's why these two camps keep butting heads. Do your own research, I guess, if you want to follow that through to some end. 
but there it is. That's what you're looking for. When you're trying to find out if they really isolated the virus, you have to find out if the details of the paper say they did it without a computer filling in the gaps and without needing some scientific cabal to come together and agree on the data, because it should be pretty obvious. It should just be what it is, but so often that's not the case, as we know. I also think that Francis Crick quote is interesting. Any child can make a virus? That's a strange thing to say. <laughs> and having a sick week has had me thinking about all these kinds of things, and I got pretty bummed out because I do have all these supplements from Clive DeCarl and Sophia. I take iodine and zinc and magnesium and have a pretty good diet, high-quality protein, the best water available, as far as I know. I've been using the AquaCure, getting plenty of sunlight. So, to get sick, with all these things going right, it's been kind of demoralizing because I can't figure out what I did wrong or what I encountered that was the catalyst for this. I'm not heavily stressed. I'm not locked into a fear state. I thought everything was fine. But I guess it seems like I get sick every two to five years, whether I eat well or not, whether I supplement or not. And it kind of makes me feel like, what is the point of trying to figure it out or put any effort in to treat myself better if it's just going to happen anyway? I don't know. Just my thoughts after a downer week, guys. A downer week except for one major plus for my wife and I, which was so many generous Venmo donations for the little Carlwood in just a week. It made us both feel very happy and were lucky enough to have family who volunteered to get some of the big ticket baby items like a crib and a stroller. But we still had some big stuff we needed to get and now I can say that THC fans paid for the little Carlwood's car seat and bassinet and also put a big dent in the diaper fund and all that. So we are very thankful. I know so many creators who have Patreons will have these added tiers where you can be a super contributor. And I've always left a lot of money on the table by not doing it that way and just having one $8 subscription. But for this temporary window of time, it definitely helps to have some extra cash with a baby coming into the world and within 60 days, <laughs> I should be a dad. Crazy to even think about. Spent one of my last good weeks of freedom stuck in bed watching Ted Lasso through the cold sweats. Ugh. Oh well. Not much time to do anything but hang on now. But if you wanted to throw a little bonus my way, I'll leave the Venmo info in the show notes. But really, if you just sign up for Plus, you'll make me very happy and you'll get twice as much show. Today we talked about graphene oxide, and when does one give up the cell phone? If we already know they're harvesting our data, and it's not good for your health, how bad would it get before you say, I'm going to live without this device, because it's already pretty bad. We also talked about electromania in the 1740s, stress, psychological conditions, anxiety attacks, and EMF, a deeper look at the Spanish flu, the Invisible Rainbow Book by Arthur Furstenberg, a brief history lesson in the East India Trading Company, the creepy AI baby, our attention, and how it relates to the big agenda. So get yourself more THC content, become a Plus member, and help me sleep at night if you care about such a thing. And it's okay if you don't. I know we all have our own problems. 
Oh, and I wanted to make a correction. We referenced the work of Steffers a couple of times, maybe in the Allison McDowell episode too. And I think I said her website URL was peaceofmind.com, but it's peaceofmindful.com. Obviously important to get that stuff right, so my bad. But that's the show. I'm going to leave it right there so I can squeeze in a couple hours of rest before I try to get that fifth show out and the joint session in just the next two days. I think I can do it. I got to do it. It is my job. And we all sometimes have to go to work when we don't feel that well. So another great conversation about Sophia's always interesting newsletter. Hope you had a good time. I appreciate her very much. And cheers to the Federation of Natural Life. I certainly consider myself a member. But I've done my part. Your move, bio-tinkerers, microscope mafia, and makers of the creepy AI baby. Your fucking to get used by you some of them want to abuse you some of them want to be